the Salvador Dali Museum, St. Petersburg, Florida. Audio described tour. Introduction. The Salvador Dali Museum galleries are currently featuring selections from the museum's permanent collection. These selections span the panorama of Dali's career and are divided chronologically into the three periods of his development as an artist. His early experiments with Impressionism and other styles of painting, the surrealistic dream paintings for which he's best known, and the paintings from the latter half of his career which exhibit his return to classical art historical values and techniques. Born in 1904 to a prominent family in the town of Figueres, which is in the northeast Spanish province of Catalonia, Dali is best known for the role he played in the Surrealist movement founded by André Breton just after World War I in Europe. Breton and the Surrealist believed that the church, the reigning governments of the time, and the culture's reliance on reason were responsible for the war and its devastation. And in an effort to propose an antidote and an alternative way of viewing the world, these writers and artists turned inward to dreams, the unconscious, the irrational, and Freudian subject matter. Their works aimed to shock viewers out of their bourgeois complacency by challenging the predominant morals and values of post-World War I society. Irreverent, prolific, and extremely talented, Dali quickly became Surrealism's golden child. But by World War II, he would leave the movement due to personal conflicts with Breton and ideological conflicts with Surrealism's political positions. During this time, Dali fell in love with Gala Eloi, the woman ten years his senior who would go on to become a combination of lover, wife, muse, and bookkeeper, so important to Dali's work that he oftentimes signed his paintings Gala Dali. When Dali and Gala first met, she was married to French surrealist poet Paul Alois. Their so-called open marriage, however, allowed her to move in with Dali in Spain, a move that Dali's conservative father thought scandalous and which contributed to Dali's eventual exile from the family home. Dali and Gala fled Spain for France in the face of the Spanish Civil War and then fled France for the U.S. in the face of German occupation during World War II. Dali became a hit and a household name in America, working on commercial projects with Alfred Hitchcock and Walt Disney, designing neckties, perfume bottles, and store display windows, appearing on the cover of Time magazine, and writing a novel, and his much celebrated autobiography, The Secret Life of Salvador Dali. In 1941, the Museum of Modern Art posted his first major retrospective. After the war, however, Dali and Gala returned to Spain so that Dali could paint amidst the Catalonian landscapes he fell in love with as a boy. Profoundly affected by the dropping of the nuclear bomb and the discovery of DNA, Dali embarked on a new chapter in his career. His nuclear mysticism, as he called it, attempted to fuse science 
with Roman Catholicism, art history, and Spanish culture, and called for a new classicism, a return to the classical technique that characterizes the 18 large-scale paintings which have come to be called his masterworks. He remained in Spain until his death in 1989. The permanent collection at the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, 95 oil paintings, over 100 watercolors and drawings, an archival library, and over 1,000 graphics, sculptures, and objets d'art, is the most comprehensive collection of original Dali work in the world. Assembled by A. Reynolds and Eleanor R. Morse during a 40-year friendship they had with Dali, the museum first opened in Cleveland and then in 1982. View of Kadikis with Shadow of Mount Pawnee, 1917. 15 inches high and 19 inches wide, this impressionist oil painting is on burlap with the fabric's coarse texture still showing beneath the paint. A panoramic landscape, the coastal fishing town of Kadikis occupies the center of the canvas and is seen from above and from a distance, from a hill outside of town perhaps. An orange light entering from the top left bathes the village's white buildings crowded together at the rim of a serene blue bay. The rugged coastline, washed in orange light, continues in the distance to the top left. The mountain, which figures in the name of this painting, Mount Pani, is out of view, but its shadow, entering on the left, casts a contrasting darkness over the bottom half of the painting. In the foreground, the earthy brown color of the lowlands is obscured by the green and brown of trees on a hill. One tree, the closest one to us and on the right, reaches upward toward the top of the painting, where its green foliage meets an orange sky. Salvador Dali loved his Mediterranean homeland and painted it repeatedly throughout his career. He was 13 years old when he painted this view of Kadikis, the small fishing village and resort town where the Dali family spent its summers. The young Salvador taught himself how to paint in the Impressionist style, using dabs of unmixed oil paint to create his images. The burlap he used for canvas was easy to get in Kadikis. The village fishermen used it to keep the wood of their boats moist when they pulled them up on the beach in the evening. For Dali, swaths of the sacking cut from the boats were a constant supply of canvas. Now pause the tape while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, the basket of bread. The Basket of Bread, 1926. This oil still life is nearly a foot square. An oblong, almost rectangular wicker basket holds four gold and white slices of baguette bread and seems to float atop a silky white and slightly crumpled tablecloth. This tablecloth, 
is echoed by a smaller swath of cloth lining the basket, and the smooth texture of the bread's hard crust sets off the basket's coarse weave. Done in photographic detail, every crease of the cloth is rendered in curve and shadow. The objects occupy the lower two-thirds of the painting, emerging from a nearly black background. The contrast of dark background and white tablecloth makes the still life seem to glow and is partially responsible for the slight illusion that the tablecloth and bread are floating in the middle of the painting. This panel furnishes proof that in 1926, Dali's formative years were drawing to a close. Dali's choice of bread is revealing, for it is a staple of life in Catalonia and thus becomes one of his many references to his Spanish heritage. Its photographic realism and dark background is reminiscent of 17th century Dutch painting, particularly the work of Jan Vermeer, 1632-1675, whom Dali greatly admired. Dali's ability to technically master any style in which he wanted to paint later enabled him to pursue much more unconventional styles of painting. This was among the first of Dali's works to appear in America. It was shown at the Carnegie Institute in 1928. Please pause the tape now while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, Degro, etc. Big Thumb, Beach, Moon, and Decaying Bird. De Gro, etc. Big Thumb, Beach, Moon, and Decaying Bird, 1928. This is a non-realistic or abstract landscape, 19 inches high and 24 inches wide. Instead of painting a traditional panoramic view as he did in View of Cadiz with Shadow of Mount Fani, Dali boils the elements of the landscape down to representative parts and reduces his color choice to blacks, grays, browns, taupes, tans, and whites. Indeed, much of the effect of the painting comes from varying contrasts rather than varying colors. Night, for example, becomes the painting's black border of irregular thickness, ranging from two inches to four inches wide, punctuated by a white disc in the upper left corner. Immediately inside this perimeter are two adjoining vertical rectangular shaped patches of gritty brownish gray. Dali has actually glued sand to the canvas and painted it over with gray paint. The patch on the left is seven to eight inches wide and 12 inches high, and is made of fine-grained sand. The adjacent patch, collaged on the right, is coarser and slightly larger, about nine inches wide and a foot high. Painted diagonally a patches of beach, from bottom left to top right, is an oblong, tan-colored object, shaped somewhat like a severed human thumb. Below it, is a contrasting black and gray shadow. Near the bottom of the left patch of sand, near the center of the painting, 
are finely drawn white and black wisps that form the skeleton of a decaying bird. At the top center, superimposed over the middle portion of the thumb and sand, is a translucent, moon-like oval that intrudes only slightly on the black border. This painting is representative of Dali's year-long transitional period, during which he experimented with collage and simple abstract forms in reaction to the traditional styles he had learned in art school. Dali was becoming interested in forms that suggested more than one meaning. For example, the long gray shape in the center of the painting can be read as a thumb, as the title suggests, but it can also be read as a toe or even a phallus. Similarly, the sphere overlapping this object may resemble the moon, but it could also be a plate on a table. Dali also experiments with space by overlapping the black and white colors, making the shapes appear to float off the surface. His eventual interest in unsettling visions is already present in Big Thumb, where the black and gray colors create a slightly ominous feeling reinforced by the decaying bird near the bottom. Please pause the tape while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, the first days of spring. The first days of spring, 1929. 19 inches high and 25 inches wide, the painting's many images occur on a flat gray plane that occupies the bottom two-thirds of the painting. The top third is an unbroken light blue sky. The monotony of the flat gray landscape is broken by three adjoining vertical stripes, black, gray, and black, that run perpendicular to the horizon through the center of the painting from the immediate foreground almost to a vanishing point on the horizon. Looking at where these stripes end in the distance, we can discern that they really form two very elongated steps, and that the right side of the plane is two steps higher than the left, as if it's a stage design for a play. In the foreground, however, our depth perception disappears, and the steps appear to flatten out, seeming more like two lanes of a blacktop highway divided down the middle by gray. Halfway to the foreground, near the center of the painting and on the first step, Dali has pasted a black and white postage stamp sized photo of a baby's face. Placed around the photo, scattered about the landscape, are a range of images. At 12 o'clock, in the distance, stand the figures of an adult and a child at the edge of the topmost step. At 1 o'clock, Closer to the foreground, and also at the edge of the topmost step, a fully clothed man, in suit, tie, and hat, straddles another man, also fully clothed in suit and tie, and lying stomach down on a couch. At three o'clock, near the right edge of the painting, away from the steps, a girl in a white smock offers her purse to a man who has white hair and a white beard. Closer to the steps, stretching from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock, 
are four stacked blocks, increasingly smaller, toward the top, each painted with bird heads. Adjacent to the top block are two cartoonish human faces. The face immediately above the blocks is biting the other's ear. An upside-down grasshopper clings to the cheek of the second face. Immediately below the baby photo, in the foreground at six o'clock, is a handled vase. At its top, where its opening would be, is a red fish and a vertical blue vein with thermometer markings superimposed on a haystack-like patch of yellowish hair. To the left of this ensemble, at seven o'clock, is a seated woman. Her legs are apart, she wears boots, but no pants, and her breasts are on the outside of her pink shirt, like two cups pasted on the fabric. A necktie falls between her breasts and ends at her genitals, and her head has been replaced by a hairy vagina. Flies are swarming. Leaning against her on the left is a kneeling, gagged man who wears a gray suit and whose mustache is turned up like Dali's. He is dipping his hands in a bucket at the woman's right foot. A finger pokes out of this bucket above two small balls at its base. This couple is in front of a painting of a crowd of people roller skating, dancing, and playing games on the deck of a cruise ship. Finally, at nine o'clock, the only figure in this third of the landscape, a man in a brown suit sits stiffly on a stool, his back to the scene. In the first days of spring, Dali uses a variety of Freudian symbols to do an emotional or psychological self-portrait. When Dali painted this piece, his mind was in turmoil. He was finally creating paintings that synthesized his ideas and styles and presented disturbing visions in brilliant detail. But at the same time, his relationship with his father was deteriorating, and Dali worried about going mad. Fortunately, he would meet Gala that summer, the woman who became his lifelong companion and who, according to Dali, saved him from madness. The first days of spring demonstrates that the 25-year-old artist was ready to join the Parisian surrealist group, and it shows the profound influence of Sigmund Freud's ideas about the unconscious and dreams. Please pause the tape while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, the weaning of furniture nutrition. The Weaning of Furniture Nutrition, 1934. This piece, only seven inches high and nine inches wide, features a disfigured human form juxtaposed against a realistic coastal landscape. The setting is a bay or inlet that curves into the painting from the right with its widest area on the right. On the left, it's bordered by small terraced hills that extend into the distance along the top part of the bay. The sky is a mixture of dark orange, green, and blue clouds, as if a storm is rolling in from the left. At left as well, where the bay meets land in the distance, is a small white 
blockhouse, and along the coast, small wooden fishing boats are docked with their sails down. The bay's greenish-blue water is still as ice. In the foreground at left, the hills give way to a beach where six more fishing boats have been beached. Looming in the foreground at right, a woman sits on the beach with her back turned toward us and her legs outstretched. She's too large for the painting's perspective. The back of her neck and a bun of hair peek from under a cloth draped over her head. A fishing net is spread over her lap and legs. Dolly has cut a window-like opening out of her back so that we can see straight through to the beach beyond her. A crutch is wedged into this window and props her up. At her feet stands a nightstand with a slightly open top drawer and a closed cupboard door below. If this nightstand were cut out of the painting, it would fit perfectly into the hole cut out of the woman's back. There's a similar shape cut out of the nightstand's cupboard door as well, and immediately to the right of the nightstand is another nightstand, identical to the first, but only a quarter of its size. A bottle sits on top of this smaller nightstand, and the contours of this smaller nightstand match exactly the shape cut out of the larger nightstand's door. This was one of Dali's favorite paintings in the Morse collection, and is a surreal meditation on the word weaning. Just as Dali's childhood nursemaid, Lucia, the woman in the painting, once weaned the young Dali from his mother, so Dali has metaphorically weaned Lucia from her familiar environment. She is no longer a nurse in his childhood home. Instead, she is a net mender on the beach in Port Yigat, a fishing village where women mend torn nets while the men are at sea. Dali next takes the weaning metaphor one step further. As a child, he associated his night table and bottle with his nurse and saw them as intrinsic parts of her presence. In the painting, he makes this association physical by weaning the objects out of her body. Their removal creates a void requiring a crutch for support and which offers support in her old age. Please pause the tape while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, Daddy Longlegs of the Evening, Hope. Daddy Longlegs of the Evening, Hope, 1940. This work is 10 inches high and 20 inches wide and takes place on a barren brown landscape that meets a light blue sky at the horizon two-thirds of the way up from the painting's bottom. This landscape is populated by a number of characters in a busy, non-realistic tableau. In the lower left-hand corner sits a naked, winged cherub, turned almost three-quarters of the way toward the scene with his back toward us. He is cast in brown, with wings the size of his hands growing out of his shoulders. With his right hand, he covers his face, while gesturing with his left to the rest of the scene. The pit by a yellowing, wilted, emaciated body 
draped over the branch of an equally lifeless branch of a tree which is penned in by cement blocks. Drooping to the ground, the head is in profile, distorted, and bald, with a low forehead and bulbous nose. Its oversized, long-eyelashed eye is closed. A swarm of ants has replaced its mouth, and a daddy-long-legged spider walks across its cheek. The figure's head, drawn down from the branch at the top of the painting by gravity, has stretched the neck like a piece of taffy. The rest of its sagging, wrinkled body, draped over the other side of the branch, has split open in places, revealing its hollowness. Just above its limp breasts, two inkwells balance on the figure's chest, and the figure somehow manages to hold an equally wilted cello in one hand and its bow in the other. In the top left corner of the canvas, the decaying body of a dirty white horse is being shot from the black barrel of a cannon, which is itself propped up by a crutch. A wilted and deformed whitish-gray biplane oozes from the barrel of the same cannon. One wing of the biplane stretches toward the center of the painting where it is in the process of becoming a headless winged figure in bandages, the statue of Winged Victory, also known as the Nike of Samothrace. The first painting the Morses purchased, Daddy Longlegs, comments on the horror of World War II. Despite the overwhelmingly lifeless figures, the inkwells on the elastic cello player dominating this painting signify the signing of peace treaties. And while the formless cello indicates the irrelevance of culture in the face of war, the spider, according to a French children's saying, is a sign of good luck. The profile of the cello player's distorted face appears regularly in Dali's work as a self-portrait and is elsewhere called the Great Masturbator. Please pause the tape while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, Geopoliticus Child Watching the Birth of the New Man. Geopoliticus Child Watching the Birth of the New Man, 1943. This painting is 18 inches wide and 20 inches high. At its center, Bali has turned the planet Earth into a giant, soft-skinned, grayish egg, out of which the new man of the title is hatching. At nine inches high and a foot wide, the egg and the new man are Dali's main focus. The egg sits on a white tarpaulin and is set against a barren brown landscape, which has a few hills in the distance set against a yellow and green sky. We are looking straight at the Atlantic Ocean. South America is to the left, drooping off the globe. Europe and an oversized Africa sag to the right. The yellow-gray continents are painted to show their... Most of the new man is still inside the egg. We can see a foot, a knee, 
and his head pushing against the inside of the rubbery shell. The shell is breaking vertically through the continent of North America, which, as the egg's shell stretches, has shifted east into the Atlantic and is now at the center of the globe. The left half of his chest is visible through the crack that runs from pole to pole through the Atlantic. One arm sticks through the crack, bracing against the outside of the shell just above Europe. A gob of blood oozes out of the crack at its base and onto the white cloth. Directly above the egg hovers a grayish sheet, like a parachute, as if it once covered the egg but was lifted to reveal the scene. In the lower right-hand corner, a nude, androgynous, brown-skinned figure faces us and points with an outstretched right arm at the egg. This figure is thin, you can see its ribs, and has sinewy legs. A leaf covers its genitals. A two- to three-year-old child is hiding behind the figure's legs, gazing at the scene. Light enters from the right, and long shadows of the figure, child, and egg stretch toward the painting's left edge. Geopolitica's child initiates Dali's classic period, a time when he derived ideas for his works from contemporary events, his Spanish heritage, and Roman Catholicism, thereby replacing much of his surrealist period's personal symbolism. While completing this painting, Dali jotted notes that read, Parachute, Paranascence, Protection, Cupola, Placenta, Catholicism, Egg, Earthly Distortion, Biological Ellipse. Geography changes its skin in historic germination. The painting is easy for many people to interpret because the expected surrealistic contradictions of Dali's earlier work are absent, making the symbolism more accessible. The man, emerging from the egg, is rising out of the new nation of America. Africa's enlargement represents that region's growing importance, and the suspended cloth forms the placenta of the new nation. Please pause the tape while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, the disintegration of the persistence of memory. The disintegration of the persistence of memory, 1952 to 1954. This nine inch high, 13 inch wide canvas appears to be a cross section of an ocean seascape as if we're looking through the glass of an aquarium tank at what's happening both above and below the water surface. The top third of the painting, which features a yellow-red rocky cliff in the top right corner, is separated from the bottom two-thirds by the surface of a body of water. In the top left corner, this surface has been lifted up, slightly peeled back like a piece of contact paper or a bedsheet, and hooked on the trunk of a tree. The bottom two-thirds of the scene is submerged. The ocean floor, if you will, is formed by a floating gridwork of 
brown rectangular bricks, as if the floor has been shaped by a waffle iron. Toward the center of the painting, there is a step down in the seafloor from left to right, as the suspended bricks drop four rows, then continue on toward the right. Closest to us, in the bottom right corner, and situated underneath these bricks, a gold-rimmed, open-faced pocket watch, bent in the middle, seems suspended in space. Part of its face has been broken, and the pieces float nearby. Just above this watch, atop the brown pile floor toward the right-hand side of the painting's equator, is a distorted profile of a head. It has a bulbous nose and an oversized eye with long eyelashes, and another broken and sagging pocket watch is draped over the head where its left ear might otherwise be. A sardine-like fish is suspended just above and behind this ghostly image. To the left, in the center of the canvas, is another gold-rimmed, open-faced pocket watch. This watch is melting like cheese and drooping over the edge of the step on the ocean floor. To its left, and on the step, a tree hovers slightly above the tiles. It has been cut into six parts, as if cross-sections of the trunk and branch have been cut and removed without its falling down. One piece of the trunk is underwater. The other half reaches into the sky where another drooping watch is hung on its single branch like a towel over a drying rack. The hands and stem have become detached from the watch, but nevertheless remain in their place, like the pieces of the tree, or like the bricks of the ocean floor, floating in air. The disintegration of the persistence of memory is a variation on the persistence of memory, a similar painting of melting watches that Dali completed 20 years earlier and which is still his most popular and famous work. This adaptation or reinterpretation acknowledges the development of modern science. Dali's understanding of atomic physics and the atomic bomb has shattered the earlier work's disquieting landscape. The painting's elements have been subdivided or separated from one another, but despite the bleak implications of this, the remaining sense of structure and symmetry suggests an orderly, mathematical, and even harmonious disintegration, as if there is an underlying atomic order, even in decomposition. Please pause the tape while you proceed to the next stop on our tour, The Discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. The Discovery of America by Christopher Columbus, 1958 to 1959. At 13 feet high and 10 feet wide, this painting is one of Dali's largest. Central in the work, in the lower background, is Columbus's ship, a 15th century caravel, or two-masted sailing ship in harbor. The sky, which is the background for the top four-fifths of the painting, is layered with gray fog and clouds. The source of light is hidden behind the ship, 
lending a slight glow to the scene and casting all shadows forward toward the viewer. The shape of an iron is on each of the ship's two sails, and on each, a glowing disc marks the intersection of the cross's beams. A few trickles of dark red drip from the horizontal arm of the bottom sail's cross. Through the top sail, and just below the glowing disc, is the outline of a ship's crow's nest, shaped like a chalice. Columbus is in the foreground, mid-step, as he sets foot in the New World, which, as rendered here, is a smooth, dark brown beach. Columbus has brown wavy hair, and a piece of white linen is draped around his body for clothing. This material extends upward to become the canvas of a banner that Columbus holds in his right hand, a banner that runs 12 feet up the painting's left side and features an angelic, full-body portrait of a white, middle-aged woman wrapped in a billowing extension of Columbus's white sash. She has her hands folded as in prayer, and she casts her eyes upward. This same sash also extends behind Columbus, beneath and to the right of the ship, connecting him to a monk who holds a crucifix and kneels on shore. His cowl hides most of his face, but one can just discern a curled-up mustache, a la Dali, poking out slightly at right. At the top and center of the painting are three small scenes in the mist and clouds. At the very top, and then just below it, are two sketched-out images from Michelangelo's Pietà, the Virgin holding the body of the crucified Christ and Moses. Just below those is a faint scene of Columbus kneeling before King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. In this complicated work, Dali uses Columbus's arrival in North America to represent his own triumphant arrival in the U.S. This is Dali's tenth masterwork, one of 18 monumental canvases that fuse his Spanish heritage, religion, myth, and art history into unified wholes. The discovery of America was commissioned for Huntington Hartford's Gallery of Modern Art on Columbus Circle in New York. At this time, some Catalan historians were claiming that Columbus was actually from Catalonia, not Italy, making the subject all the more relevant for the Catalan Dali. The banner, with the image of a woman, Gala, Dali's wife, makes her look like a saint, suggesting that she is Dali's guiding light, responsible for his own discovery of America, where he captured the world's attention. The bishop in the lower left-hand corner is the figure of Saint Narciso, a Catalan martyr who, according to legend, posthumously protected Dali's homeland by driving invading French armies back to France with swarms of biting gadflies that emerged from his tomb. The celestial sea urchin in the foreground is perhaps the most enigmatic element of the painting. Following Neil Armstrong's walk on the moon, Eleanor Morse suggested the sea urchin symbolized the moon, drawing a clear continuity between the discovery of the new world in 1492 
and the discovery of another new work, 1969. Please pause the tape while you proceed to the last stop on our tour, the hallucinogenic Toreador. The hallucinogenic Toreador, 1969-1970. At 13 feet high and nearly 10 feet wide, the action of this collage-like painting takes place inside a Roman Colosseum. Its steps and archways curve across the top of the painting in the background. The center of our attention is a complex series of six Venus de Milo statues painted across the middle two-thirds of the painting. A la the original in the Louvre, each statue is armless and clothed only with fabric draped around the hips and legs. The Venus on the far right is the largest. The others, as we move to the left, are progressively smaller echoes of the first. The robe around the largest Venus's waist is red, and the left side of her body is heavily shadowed. The robe on the second Venus from the right is swathed in white and green. The right-hand side of her body runs vertically through the center of the canvas and is heavily shadowed like the first. The next four Venuses, extending across the canvas to the left-hand side of the painting, each smaller and less detailed than the last, have their backs turned toward us, and Dali has cut a rectangular window out of each of their backs. The first three Venuses from the right, the two facing us and the first facing away from us, form a double or hidden image, the head and shoulders of a bullfighter whose face is turned three-quarters of the way to the viewer. A cubist rendition of the Venus de Milo, all blocks and angles, fills the bottom left corner of the painting. In the painting's right-hand corner, is a little boy dressed in a blue sailor's outfit standing with his back to us. He's holding a bone and a hoop, wondering at the scene before him. As if indicating the direction of the boy's gaze, six pairs of flies, each nearly as large as the boy, extend diagonally from the boy to the middle of the lower half of the canvas, where they disappear near another hidden image, a bull's head. Between every two pair of flies, a miniature Venus de Milo series. Up the right-hand side of the canvas, above the boy, and floating across the robe of the largest Venus, are two roses. Two Venus heads, done in the pop art style of Andy Warhol, and the head and shoulders of a man. The French author Voltaire, from Dali's painting, Slave Market with a Disappearing Bust of Voltaire. Further up the right side of the canvas, at the same height of the largest Venus's head, are two more pop art Venus heads. The hallucinogenic Toreador is an initially chaotic, many-layered collage of a painting which makes use of double images, modern art techniques, Catalan culture, art history, and references to Dali's own work to create a single canvas retrospective vision of his life and art. Here, inside the architecture of a Roman Colosseum, Dali pairs up the male and female ideals, the goddess of beauty and love, and the Spanish bullfighter. 
in tribute to a famous bullfighter killed in the ring in the late 60s. His incorporation of pop art, op art, and cubism seems to display not only his virtuosity as an artist, especially in regards to artistic styles which came after surrealism, but also seems to assert that his own work is central to understanding what came later. The hallucinogenic Toreador is one of the last major paintings which Dali completed, and it's the last on today's tour. Thank you for taking the time to explore these selections from the museum's collection, and please let us know how we can make your future visits more enjoyable. This tour was produced by Audio Description Associates, Tacoma Park, Maryland. It was written by Joel Snyder and Michael Chaucer. This is Joel Snyder.